This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. All right, and we are live. While we wait for people to come in, Rick Allen Ross, how are you doing today? Good, Eric. Uh, nice to be on with you. It's great to have you back. Um, it's been a while. It's been about a year, I think, since you were on the show with the podcast. Now, I don't know if you were doing it at the time or intervening, but or intervening, I should say. You worked on Far Cry 5. What was that all about? Well, it, it was uh, Far Cry 5, of course, is part of the series of Far Cry. And the whole obj object of the game by Ubisoft is to bring you into a world that you can experience. And uh, Dan Hay, the creative director of the Far Cry series, asked me to participate and be part of the team to create a game based on a cult, a fictitious cult, uh, and its compound in Montana. And when you play the game, you're dropped in as part of a federal law enforcement team and it goes sideways. It gets violent, it gets crazy, and you have to fight your way or find your way out. And it's a, a thrilling game. It, it went very well. Uh, and I was uh, I traveled with Dan and the creative team as they rolled out Far Cry around the world. Uh, we went to Paris, to Sydney, Montreal, San Francisco, and the game, um, you know, was very, very successful. Well, how did you how did you meet um, Dan? I got I got a call from uh, Ubisoft in Montreal, and they asked me would I be interested in working on the team, and that I would be their expert consultant who would give them ideas, uh, information about cults because they wanted to make the game as real as they possibly could, and they surely did. It's uh, vividly real, uh, kind of kind of frighteningly real. Uh, though there are groups that I've said in interviews are worse than the one depicted in Far Cry 5. Oh, really? I, I, that was my next question. Like, uh, Silence of the Lambs was based on a kind of a combination of three serial killers. Um, yeah. Ed Gein, I believe. Um, Bundy is a little bit in there. And others. Who was the cult based on? Uh, well, it was it was based, I would say it was a hybrid of several different groups. Um, I, they they had aspects of a group in Argent, excuse me, in Chile called Colonia Dignidad. And then they had aspects of the Waco Davidians and then a group with a compound in Montana called Church Universal and Triumphant. So Church Universal was led by a woman in Far Cry 5. Uh, there, there is this prophet who is the leader of the group who looks a lot like David Koresh, and his name is Joseph Seed. And he leads this group uh, that has a compound in Montana that is very similar to the Church Universal Triumphant. They're preparing for the end of the world. Uh, Joseph Seed has predicted doomsday, and uh, the authorities are very worried about the violence of the group and, it, and and the, the stockpile of weapons that they have, which would be very much like the Waco Davidians. 
And uh, the group is Bible-based, so it is also like the Waco Davidians in that aspect. Where it's mm. also, also like um, Colonia Dignidad is that the group uh, in Far Cry 5 has a drug that they use to uh, manipulate and control people, and it's called bliss. And that mm. drug is similar to the drugs that were given to the followers of uh, Colonia Dignidad in that compound at the foot of the Andes in Chile. What, what, what drug was that? Uh, it was a combination of, um, you know, uh, basically tranquilizers to make the people uh, docile, more obedient, submissive. Okay, almost like it was. Was it like one of those zombie drugs that I Yeah, I, I, I would say it made people kind of flat. Uh, and uh, this was a group that that was um, that was led by a man who was a pedophile. His name was Paul Schaefer. He's now dead, uh, and he would molest the children and recruit children into the into the compound so that he could sexually exploit them. I guess it's a good to be king. Isn't that really the reason behind a lot of cult leaders? Or am I wrong? Just to be able to have as much sex and power as they can when living off of other people. Yeah, I I think it's a it's a business plan if you if you look at it that way because a lot of cult leaders are very rich. I mean, when L. Ron Hubbard, uh, the founder and leader of Scientology, died, his estate in 1986 was 600 million dollars, and Scientology mm-hmm. today supposedly is worth over $2 billion. And there have been uh, other purported cult leaders who have also been very wealthy. For example, Keith Raniere, who had two Seagram's liquor heiresses as his uh, bankers. Uh, he went through about $150, 200000000 million of their money. And uh, when they arrested him for sexual trafficking and, and tax fraud and so on, uh, he had millions of dollars in a personal account that he controlled. So a lot of these people, yes, they get money, they get power, they get sex, and this is what they're in it for. Typically, they're deeply narcissistic people uh, and often are described as psychopaths, sociopaths. That is, they have no conscience right. for anyone. You're breaking up a little bit. Um, hopefully, this will settle down. Yeah, there we go, I think. Okay, I've got sound. Um, hopefully, the image starts coming back. Hmm. Are you hearing me all right? Are we back yet? I I can see you, but I, I maybe okay, uh, my image. Okay, there we go. Yeah, we're back again. Okay, so um, you were talking about the charming, narcissistic to psychopath um, selection we have as cult leaders. Yeah, psychopaths can be very charming. Uh, Keith Raniere, David Koresh, Jim Jones, 
all of them could be very charming and they were very charismatic uh, people. Uh, well, Ranieri, not so much. I mean, he was kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a milk toast, uh, kind of not very exciting person. But uh, mm. David Koresh and Jim Jones were very good speakers. And of course, Charles Manson uh, had a way of manipulating people and charming people as well. What do you think? And I think I brought this up with you before, but it would be fun to explore it again. There's um, something out now that my good friend Chris Lockett calls hustle porn. And it is a lot of these entrepreneur types that are out, you know, saying hustle, hustle, hustle. And they're kind of building these giant followings. And I don't know if you could consider them a scam or full-blown cult or just a business. Do you have any thoughts or have you looked into any of these people? Well, many multi-level marketing schemes, in my opinion, uh, the people who become involved in them typically don't make much money. And it's the people at the top of the pyramid uh, that are the founders and the early distributors that make the money because that's the way it's set up. So there often are very charismatic, very authoritarian people who run an MLM. Uh, Keith Ranieri, who ran Nexium, initially was uh, an MLM guru. He had something called Consumer Byline that was mm. put out of business by um, many attorney generals of various states suing him until he basically folded and went out of business. But he, he started out as a multi-level marketing guru. But the, the, there are three core characteristics that would define a group, whether it be a business, uh, a philosophical group, a religious group, um, a martial arts group, a meditation group. It could be anything. But you look for three core characteristics to distinguish it as a destructive cult. Number one, an authoritarian leader who becomes an object of worship. Whatever the leader says is right is right. Whatever the leader says is wrong is wrong. And the leader typically has no meaningful accountability. Is it always no, one or could it be um, a, a core group? It, it, could be, uh, it could be two or three people, but most commonly it's only one person and it's usually a man. Though there have been a number of women that have, have very successfully uh, led groups called cults, such as uh, Guru Ma, Elizabeth Clare Prophet in Montana with the Church Universal and Triumphant. Uh, but then the second uh, characteristic would be that the leader has a process of indoctrination, of training, in which he breaks people down uh, using uh, well-known influence techniques and coercive persuasion, such as control of the environment in a compound, uh, to shut out any alternative perspectives. And basically, the leader breaks people down, changes them, and then locks them in to this new way of thinking in which they are subservient to the leader. And then finally, the third characteristic is that the leader uses undue influence to exploit people and do damage. And that varies by that varies by degree from group to group. So some leaders just want the money. Some want money and sex. Others become even more nefarious. They are involved in criminal activities, and they they 
may require people to, uh, to refrain from medical care. So people are dying from medical neglect. They may abuse children in the group uh, through excessive corporal punishment. Or in the case of mm-hmm. a cult like Colonia Dignidad, uh, the children were sexually abused. Wow. You mentioned about controlling the environment, all that. What popped in my head, you know, to care, kick back to the MLM deal and the guru deal is in some of these seminars, they might be a two or three day retreat and they literally don't let people out, you know, yeah. even for emergencies or anything else. And, you know, these are, you know, business discoveries and how to be your bigger you. And there's people in the back of the room where um, folks get to sign up and spend more money. Yes, I was a consulting expert uh, for the prosecution uh, at the trial of James Arthur Ray. Uh, Ray, as you may remember, uh, was a seminar training guru, and he eventually had this one uh, retreat that was set up in Sedona, Arizona. Was that when they suffocated? Three people died in his makeshift wannabe sweat lodge. And uh, Mm. James Arthur Ray made millions and millions of dollars selling uh, these seminars. And people would come into them. The environment would be very controlled. Uh, Essentially, he controlled those people to death uh, in his so-called sweat lodge. Didn't he get out and then get into trouble and go back to prison or something like that? Uh, Actually, no. Uh, he, He did go to jail. He was convicted of negligent homicide. And then he served about two years, and then he was released. And he's back in business. I mean, he he's, been, he he's, he's conducting <laughs> it seminars. It pays. And so he's conducting seminars in, like, Las Vegas. Last I heard, he is living in Las Vegas, and that's his hub. And he's back in the same old, same old. Wow. Where, where he's uh, doing seminar training that is very expensive. And then he tries to pressure people in the seminar to upsell them so that they will pay more and more. And uh, many people become so embroiled in this, they they can financially break themselves. Okay, well, good. We have some questions rolling in now, which is awesome. That's the point behind this. And folks, please put questions here in the chat and I will ask them as we go. Uh, First one is, is mega a cult? This is being reported as to whom... Epstein and Maxwell were involved with or in? Uh, I think that um, that from what we're seeing, Jeffrey Epstein was a kind of cult leader. Um, I wouldn't call it a highly organized cult, but he certainly used uh, uh, gaslighting, you know, uh, mystical manipulation, influence techniques to recruit and retain the, these girls that he exploited and horribly took advantage of. And, um, but, but I don't think it was organized quite tightly as a cult. And I think, but he was a personality that was charismatic, that, uh, that he engendered dependency and submission from the girls. And uh, he certainly uh, affected their thinking and their perception of, of what was going on. I think many of them felt mesmerized by Epstein. Interesting. You had mentioned that about uh, what popped in my head, especially with him is because of pedophilia and whatever. 
that he groomed, and that's something I've talked to FBI agents about. Is that similar to a, a cult maneuver, you know, grooming um, potential victims for molestation or grooming the public to get them as part of the cult? Well, in, in my book, Cults Inside Out, there's a chapter devoted to abuse of controlling relationships. And that's where you have someone who's grooming a target and they're lulling someone into a relationship with a plan of basically dominating and controlling and very likely abusing that person. And if you will, an abusive controlling relationship can be seen as a cult of two. Uh, mm. One is the abusive controlling partner who dominates and manipulates the victim, who, who you know, really has no idea initially what they're getting involved in. Uh, there is this bait and switch con that takes place in cults and it takes place in abusive controlling relationships where you think that the person that you're involved with is a, is a loving and kind person and they only show you what they want to show you initially to, to pull you in. And then as they pull you in deeper, they begin to isolate you from your friends, from your family and manipulate you by uh, gaslighting you, which is a term used to describe uh, mystically almost manipulating people uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in a kind of planned uh, routine that to the victim seems to be spontaneous, but is right. really premeditated and planned by the abusive controlling partner. And the term gaslighting comes from this fantastic movie mm -hmm. uh, that was made in the 30s with the actress Ingrid Bergman as the victim and Charles Boyer as the abusive controlling partner. And the movie is called Gaslight. Right. And it's a matter of she doesn't know if she's crazy or not. And he's just manipulating it the whole way through. And you had mentioned about the course of relationship. And I think I talked to you about it before. It made me think of pimps. Very, very, very much in line with the, the movie Gaslighting and with an abusive controlling relationship. Uh, women who come under the control of a pimp, uh, frequently that person comes on romantically and grooms them and then pulls them in and, and bit by bit takes them to a place that they never intended to go. Uh, very much like a cult experience. Uh, what you see is not what you get. And it's, uh, it's really, uh, people are tricked and trapped into these situations. And then they feel powerless, they feel helpless. Uh, and it's a kind of learned helplessness that they're schooled in, that they're trained in. And that people like James Arthur Ray, uh, David Koresh, uh, Keith Ranieri are very adept at. They can identify people's vulnerabilities and then they drill down and they just crack them open and then take advantage of the individuals that come under their influence. Yeah, I have one more before I get back to the other questions, but would you say it's a fair statement to compare it to uh, boiling the frog in terms of um, none, none of this happens right away? I mean, we have this impression that people walk into the building and all of a sudden, poof, they're you know, mind wiped or whatever. And we're going, no, that's never going to happen. But doesn't it take place a lot more slowly? Like, you know, you, you meet these people and they're your friends and you get to go out to dinner with them and they just seem to really care about you and what's going on. And 
over time, it just starts shifting a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Well, yeah, Eric, uh, what you say is true. You know, the analogy has been uh, given that uh, it's like a boiling a frog in a pot of water on a stove. You put the mm -hmm. frog in the pot and the water is tepid, and then you gradually increase the temperature. And the frog does not sense that, you know, I'm going to be boiled to death. Whereas if you had thrown the frog into the hot water, it would jump out. So by gradually increasing the temperature, you can, uh, you can trap the frog with, without it becoming immediately alarmed. And so that's, that's what happens when people are lulled into a cult group or an abusive controlling relationship. Uh, they don't see what's happening. And many times the person who is bringing them into a cult, for example, is a romantic interest, a family member, a coworker, a friend, and there's already this element of trust. And that person that's bringing you in, they, they are themselves drinking the Kool-Aid, which, you know, of course means they're in. They're all in. They're fully trained and indoctrinated. So they believe that what they're bringing you to is the ultimate good, something that right. you will benefit from. And so because they're committed, because they're enthusiastic and genuine, you are taken in and you trust them. And gradually the group escalates its demands. And, sure. and it, it doesn't show you the crazier aspects uh, initially. Uh, for example, Keith Ranieri kept secret uh, this, this group that was uh, deeply embedded in, in the group Nexium that was called DOS, which was mm -hmm. a, uh, a, a sex slave inner group, inner circle that was run by certain women under the direction of Keith Ranieri, in which he would brand women literally with a cauterizing mm -hmm. iron uh, with his initials. And they right. would become his slaves. And it's a very Machiavellian uh, principle, too. I can imagine they use this like, yes, we're going overboard this time, but uh, because we have to. We, we have to go these extra steps. And in terms of manipulating the other people to manipulate further. Um, well, it, it's always the ends justify the means. Exactly. And, and, and so what Ranieri and his people would say is we're fighting, if you will, for an ethical world. How sex labor is, is yeah, yeah, it's war. <laughs> and, and everyone that is not part of our movement is potentially the enemy. And Ranieri borrowed heavily from Scientology. So he would say, if you are not with us, you may be a suppressive person, an right. SP, which is a, a label used by Scientology to describe people who are outsiders who may be critical of Scientology or whatever. And in this way, Ranieri separated people from their families. And this is also how Scientology has historically separated people mm -hmm. from families by declaring someone an SP, or if you're associating with an SP, you might be labeled a PTS, a potential trouble source. And so in <laughs> this, yeah, in this way- And then you have PTSD when you leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scientology is just a system of courses and curriculum that seems very uh, educational at first blush. Right. But as you become more and more immersed in it, it gets, in my opinion, crazy. And uh, if, if 
you were exposed to the most bizarre beliefs of Scientology initially, which you would not be, it would be withheld from you, then you would probably be shocked and you'd say, well, I, I don't want to be part of this. Uh, so what they do is a kind of bait and switch con. What they initially show you is not what is behind the curtain. That's what you're right. going to find as you as you go through their course curriculum. And as they begin to, in my opinion, shut down your ability to critically think and independently evaluate what's being presented to you. Makes total sense. And I had a question here. How common is drug use among cults and are addictive personalities more susceptible to falling into a cult? I think an addictive personality would be just one example of a vulnerability. Uh, and and a cult will look to see what vulnerabilities you have that they can manipulate. And an addictive personality might be one. Someone who's kind of OCD might be another. Or, or just the propensity of a person to be all in and fully mm -hmm. committed to whatever they do. Because the cult group doesn't want lazy people. They want people that are high energy, that are going to work hard and make, uh, make the group uh, more successful, bring more money in, more, more members in, provide more free labor. Uh, drugs are not typically used by cult groups, but there are exceptions. Uh, Charles Manson, for example, in his group, The Family, used drugs extensively. Uh, and there are groups today that use hallucinogenic herbs. Uh, they may use psilocybin or some other uh, indigenous herb to induce a hallucinogenic state, as Charles Manson did, in order to uh, find people in a more suggestible state where they can then manipulate them. What Manson would do is he would give his followers drugs, claim that he was going on a trip with them, but he would not take the drugs. And then he would be able to manipulate them more easily. Uh, and that was one of his tricks. Uh, Paul Schaefer used uh, tranquilizers on the people in Colonia Dignidad. So they have, uh, there are cults that have used drugs, but typically that is not something uh, that they use. Well, and I could see where maybe it wouldn't be wise to have a lot of drugs because. Typically, like there's the old saying about um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that it starts out with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, then it becomes drugs and rock and roll, then it becomes drugs. And, you know, any prepared cult leader might want to watch out because the people might lose control, and you could lose control of them because they get too deep into the drugs. Well, many, many groups use hypnosis transinduction meditation techniques to bring people into a suggestible state where they're more malleable. Uh, there was a cult called Synanon that was very famous in California that was founded by Charles Diedrich. And it was actually a drug rehab compound where That's people right. where people were brought off drugs. Uh, it was Diedrich that coined the phrase uh, let today be the first day of the rest of your life. And well, tell me about that, that it wasn't, you felt like that was one cult that wasn't designed to be a cult, but kind of over time slipped into being a cult. Yeah, I think that Charles Diedrich may have had uh, 
idealistic goals where he himself was, uh, he came out of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. He had a problem with alcoholism that would la later be uh, in, in part his downfall. Uh, but he created a community of people that were trying to get sober, uh, get straight. And uh, the idea was to help the community and to help people. And he did help people for a period of time, but because he was an absolute authoritarian leader and he became right. an object of worship with no meaningful accountability, as the old saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power absolute corrupts power absolutely. Corrupt, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what happened to Charles Diedrich. Okay, back to the questions we have. Has one taste a female sex cult run by a woman named Nicole Dedon? been classified as a cult? Um, in my opinion, the group fits the criteria. And if uh, uh, people go to culteducation.com, which is the Cult Education Institute database, there is a subsection about one taste. And also, if you uh, go to the message board, the public message board that is attached to the Cult Education Institute, the forum, you can find many people who have had direct experience with that seminar training, uh, commenting and talking about what is wrong, in their opinion, with one taste. Okay. Um, I don't know. I might have actually had somebody who was involved with that, uh, Robert Candell. As a guest, I, I don't remember. Oh, now I got to look that up. Uh, let me see. I've got here. It's more of a comment. So happy you're doing to this interview. Will it be available on YouTube? Yes. This you guys are experiencing it live and can interact live. But later on, this is available. And I highly encourage you to leave comments below and ask questions. Well, I'll try to reach out from time to time and check back with Rick and get those answers, too. So, yeah, this will be up in perpetuity or as long as YouTube lives. Next one. Is there a personality type? We kind of went into that a little bit already, but is there a particular personality type or is it just, you know, anybody can do this? Well, you know, I um, I once was uh, speaking with the eminent psychologist Margaret Singer, and uh, we were talking about David Koresh. And Margaret Singer was probably uh, one of the most prolific writers about cults of the 20th century. And um, she was a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and once nominated for a Nobel. And when I was talking to her, I said to her, do you think that David Koresh is a psychopath? And Margaret said, you know, Rick, I think pretty much they're all psychopaths. So what she meant was that most of the destructive cult leaders sure. that she had dealt with were, at, at a minimum, it seems, sociopaths, but most of them were described as psychopaths. Uh, and uh, David Koresh would be one example. So they can seem to be very charming, very glib, sure. very well-spoken, charismatic. They're often quite intelligent. Uh, but they lack uh, empathy. Uh, they seem to be incapable of really experiencing empathy, uh, though they may feign it. Uh, they have been described as malignant narcissists. That is that uh, they're deeply narcissistic uh, mm -hmm. and they have 
grandiose delusions about their own importance, their omnipotence, their role in the world. And this seems to be the profile of uh, a destructive cult leader. That is that they are people uh, that that can be described as uh, deeply disturbed personalities. And the typical cult member, um, we kind of discussed before, but is there a, a choice person for that? You, you would mention, I think, even type A personalities are, are very susceptible. No, I would have to say that when we begin to uh, speculate about a profile, uh, yes, people are vulnerable. We're all vulnerable uh, to the lure of such a group, especially if we're going through a bad period in our in our life. For example, work isn't going well. Somebody you love has died. Uh, you are isolated from your family and friends in a new environment. You move to a new town, a new city, a new job. Um, you're attending college as a freshman uh, uh, and living in the dorm or in campus housing away from home. You're lonely. Uh, people who are happy and feeling very positive about their life are less likely to be recruited than people who are going through a difficulty. So the, we all go through difficulties. So the, the key to the cult uh, recruiter, and that, that is, and that recruiter is very predatory, is to identify people that are at that vulnerable state. And then, mm. and then good cult leaders can just smell it. Uh, it's almost like blood in the water and a shark or, or, or the smell of blood to a wolf. So these are people who are very predatory. They prey on others and they identify those vulnerabilities, those weaknesses. And as I said before, they drill down into them and crack people open. And they use those vulnerabilities uh, to compromise a person's ability to think independently. And, and they, they basically uh, debilitate people from the standpoint of being able to think uh, as an individual. And they engender dependency upon them to make value judgments for you, for the people that they recruit. Isn't that what brought you kind of into the business? Was, I believe your grandmother was in a uh, nursing home and a group went in. And I can't think of people more susceptible or vulnerable than those in a nursing home. Uh, yes. Is that what brought the, you into it? Yeah, that is what brought me into it. My grandmother was 82 uh, she was, uh, uh, when she was 18, she was a refugee from uh, Poland and she immigrated mm -hmm. to the United States in the early 1900s through Ellis Island, fleeing, uh, you know, persecution, my grandmother, uh, being a Jew, a Jewish woman and the nursing home that she lived in was a Jewish nursing home and a group that specifically targeted Jews had members of their staff, uh, people that work with the, this particular uh, Were mission. Were they church themselves? Uh, they claimed to be, but uh, they weren't actually. Most of the people were, had no Jewish uh, biological background. And in fact, uh, they were, um, I don't know what you would call them. Uh, they, they had an affinity for things that were Jewish. And the organization... Right. 
called itself Jewish Voice Broadcast and was led by an ordained Pentecostal minister, Lewis Kaplan, who uh, started life as a Jew but converted to become a Christian and a Pentecostal. And his ministry targeted Jews specifically for conversion to fundamentalist Christianity. And uh, they covertly planted people on the paid staff of the nursing home with the idea of targeting elderly people that lived in the nursing home. And my, my objection to it when I found out about it from my grandmother who was harassed by one of these people, Uh, My feeling was, look, you've got every right to preach what you believe and share your faith, but do it in an honest, ethical way. Don't covertly come into this nursing home. Come into the front through the front door and say, I'm here to share my faith with anyone who's interested. And then if someone's interested, they will let you know and you can go share and study the Bible with Mrs. Goldstein or whoever you want. But the way that they came in surreptitiously, in my opinion, and in many people's opinion at the time, was very unethical and underhanded. And that began my work with controversial religious groups, fringe movements, uh, and then that led to destructive cults. Well, I wanted to ask because um, I, I study also a little bit about confidence people or con men and women. And affinity cons are very, very prevalent. Um, surprisingly, Salt Lake City has a ton of cons because of uh, the Latter-day Saints or Mormons. But any group that is very tightly intertwined is uh, very susceptible for affinity cons. And maybe I'm wrong, but I've always thought of as a, a cult as a con at scale. That, that That is exactly correct. I mean, Margaret Singer once told me, she said, Rick, the uh, a cult leader is a con man. The only difference between a conventional con man and a cult leader is a typical con man runs a con uh, and then leaves town. I mean, they take the money and they run. Uh, but a cult leader runs the same con on the same people indefinitely. Uh, you know, just on and on and on it goes. And Bernie Madoff, uh, who, of course, ran the biggest Ponzi scheme I can recall in in American history that involved billions of dollars, he largely was uh, running an affinity con. Uh, and he, he, he would recruit people into his investment scheme that were very respected leaders in the Jewish community. And then they would say, hey, Bernie Madoff is great. And they would introduce him to other Jews. Uh, For example, Eli Wiesel, uh, you know, who received the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for his work uh, talking about and his experience in the Holocaust and uh, representing Holocaust victims from around the world. He was uh, cheated out of money and built by Bernie Madoff. And in the Mormon church, what will happen is a con man who may have a Mormon background will try to recruit someone who is respected in the church, like a bishop or someone uh, well-known to other Mormons. And then he will bring him into the Ponzi scheme. And if you understand a Ponzi scheme, the people that come in early may actually make some money. It's the, Mm -hmm. the people that come in later that get cleaned out. 
So uh, Mormons who see their bishop is doing well, and the bishop will say, I'm doing well, I'm making money. And the bishop has no idea that he's part of a Ponzi scheme. And so right. many, many Mormons have been exploited in this way because uh, Mormons look up to their hierarchy as an example of being a worthy Mormon. And if a bishop is recruited and people they uh, respect are recruited, they are more likely to listen to this person who's pitching the scheme. That makes total sense. Now, um, somebody's reaching back in Gaslight. I thought he wanted the money like she had money. And when he put her in the nut house, he got it. Uh, well, actually, it's it's even more complex than that. Uh, he was a jewel thief. Charles Boyer, the actor, plays a guy who was a jewel thief. And he stole uh, these jewels. And, and they were hidden in the house that, um, that Ingrid Bergman lived in. And mm. he wanted to find the jewels. And so he would... Uh, search the house, and and Ingrid Bergman would hear noises, and she wouldn't know where he was, and he would tell her that it was all in her imagination, and that she was mm. going mad, and and also she was an heiress that had a large fortune, and he wanted to get her money, the house, her property, but he was searching constantly for these hidden jewels uh, that were somewhere in the house. Okay. Okay. Now. Somebody commented, Allison Mack of um, Smallville, actress, was second in command in DOS, and the brand was a hybrid of their names? Uh, supposedly, the initials were supposed to be Allison Mack and Keith Raniere. Uh, but uh, the people who were being branded were told something entirely different, that it was some type of symbol. And they were horrified <laughs> They were horrified to realize later that it was Keith Raniere's initials. And just so that uh, people understand, this was being done by a doctor with a cauterizing iron, with no anesthetic, and women mm. were subjected to being burned with this cauterizing iron uh, for, for as long as a half hour to burn oh this symbol into their oh. flesh uh, near their, uh, near their vagina, right. near their vagina. Uh, and, and so this is what Ranieri did. And, uh, he would, uh, kind of be privy to what was going on. He was, in my opinion, a, a sadist and mm -hmm. he, and I believe a misogynist and he, he wanted Oh, and he, he, he got off on it and he would he would communicate by cell phone. Uh, he would see what was going on by video. And there were many of these women who were in, in they, they were tortured. And Alison Mack, I believe, was victimized herself by Keith Ranieri. I mean, she gave up a wonderful career. She lost most of her money and she mm -hmm. became his his pawn. She became basically his his deployable agent that he could use in any way that he wanted, and and he did. He would he would use women in the most heinous ways to exploit other women. That brings up an interesting ethical question, though. Like most predators, or not most, I'll just say many many predators who are out there, especially pedophiles, were molested themselves as children. 
And there is that side of it that obviously you feel terrible that they went through pain and were a victim themselves. But at what point do you have to say, yeah, you were a victim, but too bad you're a monster now? Well, with, that uh, with Allison Mack. Yeah, well, I, I think with Allison Mack, it escalated over a long period of time. Uh, that she did not get to the point that she was a subordinate in the sex slave group overnight. Uh, he pulled her in bit by bit, step by step over a period of years. And I think people uh, lost contact with reality uh, because uh, Allison Mack and people like her, like her were embedded deeply in Nexium. Sure. I mean, I dealt with this uh, cult for more than a decade, uh, and and Keith Ranieri would harass me. I mean, he sued me for 13 years for having information. program anyone from there? Yes, I, I did interventions to uh, deprogram, uh, actually successfully uh, a, a brother, uh, a sister, two sisters and a husband of one sister. And then I was unsuccessful in getting uh, uh, their brother also out. Uh, and he, he continued with the group and lost a great deal of money and was horribly isolated from his family for years. And, and this is what Ranieri would do. He would isolate people. And if you're in a group and there's no legitimate reason to leave, and you're being isolated from friends, from family, uh, those are big red flags. And you should realize that you're, you're being isolated not only from people, but from reality, because you're being cocooned by the group in a way that is like being in an echo chamber, a bubble, where you're not really getting accurate feedback or any sure. alternative perspective. And in that way, a leader can control the way people think and the way they feel by controlling their environment. And, and that's why uh, the most extreme cult leaders will create compounds so that they can cut right. people off from the outside world. Now, where are the members now? I mean, it's always interesting to see how everything was and how they live, but Ranieri's in prison. What about the group? Like the brother, now that all the time's gone by, is he out? Is he clean? Um, has somebody taken over the business, so to speak? Are the members still cultified? I mean, what is the status of folks? I am hearing uh, recurring rumors that there's a kind of uh, ongoing camaraderie from the remnant of Nexium, uh, both in Mexico and the United States. And there are still people that cling to, you know, the teachings, the training that they went through and they invested years of their lives, um, maybe their life savings in Nexium courses and, and activities. So there's still some people that are there, but they don't seem to have a powerful leader to coalesce around with Ranieri in prison. And keep in mind also that his immediate second in command, Nancy Salzman, uh, is under house arrest with an electronic surveillance uh, bracelet. And so mm -hmm. is uh, Claire Bronfman, who financed Nexium in large part and gave uh, probably over $100 million to Keith Ranieri, uh, directly or indirectly. 
and she is under house arrest in her apartment in Manhattan. And then Allison Mack is under house arrest with her parents in California. And, and also uh, uh, Nancy Salzman's daughter is under house arrest, Lauren Salzman, and uh, likewise an accountant for the group who did their books is under house arrest. Wow, what a mess. Well, I, on a lighter note, um, Dirk um, posted the comment, I'm way too lazy to be in a cult. Yeah, you have to be a hard worker and be willing to, you know, hit the bricks and do whatever. And uh, if you're lazy and you're not being productive, the group is likely to cut you loose. You know, I mean, they're they're looking for, for people who can uh, – make their bottom line better. And the leader is looking for people that can meet some need that he has. And if you can't fill that need by working, uh, by uh, giving money to the leader, by being a, a, a meaningful recruiter, uh, they, they might cut you loose. They don't want dead weight. Hmm. Fascinating. Now, somebody brought this up. I think it's interesting. Um, JLW says, I heard AA can get a bit like that since they define everyone who drinks as a, as potential problems. I'm guessing he's re he or she is referring back to the Scientology and cutting off from personalities. Well, I don't know. I, that's an interesting question. There have been a number of groups that have broken off from AA. We discussed one, Synanon. Uh, there was mm -hmm. also a group uh, called Endeavor Academy in Wisconsin that was led by an XAA uh, participant who would use a lot of AA in his uh, training of people in the Ad Endeavor Academy. Uh, his name was Chuck, Chuck Anderson. He's now deceased. So Chuck, Chuck. Chuck Anderson. Oh, Chuck Anderson. Okay. Uh, yeah. And he was a guru and he had a following in uh, Wisconsin Dells is where the group was based. So so what what happens is there there may be someone who is using AA. Uh, they may drop into AA meetings and then try to find vulnerable people that they can siphon off from AA and recruit and bring out to their own group. Uh, and in a sense, they're a parasite mm. of, of AA. And uh, that has happened. Good place to find vulnerable people. Yes, you mentioned is. they're looking for vulnerable folks. So AA would seem like AANA, sexual, not whatever. Those would all seem to be a fantastic recruiting ground. Yeah, it, it can be seen as like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, if you have people in an environment like that where they already are saying, look, I've got a very serious problem. I'm here for help. And then you're kind of like a shark working, working a beach area. And you're going to grab somebody out of that group and then pull them into your own group. I've seen that happen. But AA in and of itself, I would not describe as a destructive cult because they do not have an absolute authoritarian leader right. that is that is a living leader. That they don't is, make any money either. I, I don't. No. They're pretty poor for a cult. No, <laughs> I think no, they're, they're pretty much. Yeah. But but there there are aspects of it, you know. There there are training people to have a kind of mindset uh, in order to uh, to encourage their sobriety 
and they do have sponsors and that can be seen as somewhat controlling. Uh, but I would not categorize AA as a destructive cult. But I would recognize that there are cults that are uh, opportunistically recruiting at AA meetings. And if you go to an AA meeting and somebody tries to pull you away and uh, get you into something else, you should be very wary. Somebody just posted, too. And this is interesting. I don't know if you could say that it's a cult or not, but social justice is turning into a cult. Maybe that falls in what you were saying, that there may be some cultish behavior, but I don't see where there's like a single social justice warrior that everyone reports to. Yeah, I, I think that what's happening in, in our political environment right now in the United States is with this intense polarization and demonization of by the uh, of the left of the right and the right of the left, you have sure. both sides claiming the other side is a cult. And I would encourage people to recognize that political parties have a democratic process. They do not have absolute mm -hmm. totalitarian leaders. And that the people that, that follow a particular political party are not brainwashed like cult members. They're people that have sympathies, they have pre-existing ideas, philosophies that are in sync with the leadership and the party that they affiliate with. Uh, you may not like those ideas and philosophies, but calling them a cult is not useful. It, it's really kind of uh, it, it denigrates and dismisses the genuine suffering and 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 the plight of people who are in destructive cults. And I, I don't think it's useful to label uh, groups cults that are not cults. Yeah, I, I agree. You should be able to define it specifically. Um, JLW has written, I think narcissism is a big factor as well. I have noticed how friendship groups who have sociopaths kind of don't question that person and that person starts setting unreasonable rules well if if you have any kind of group that that you begin to identify a leader that is manipulating and controlling the group you may have stumbled into what is either a cult or becoming a cult uh, so when the leader is all powerful and people cannot question the leader and when and when you try to question a leader, you're dismissed, you're denigrated, you're attacked. Uh, that may be uh, the beginning uh, of you becoming aware that you're in a group that is is a cult or very cult like, and and you need to maybe step back and reflect on what kind of a group you're involved in, or that you're running. I mean, I think we all should be aware that we can be power hungry ourselves. We may say, Oh, our little group of friends. And for whatever reason, people are looking up to us. We may be like, Oh, I don't like what they said. And, and we don't accept them as our friend anymore. So you know, we need to be careful ourselves. Yeah. Well, there are people that are called social influencers or people online that have cult followings and some of them uh, become rather intoxicated with the power they have and have acted out badly. And others can be seen as online cult leaders. Uh, for example, there's a guy, Nature Boy is his nickname. His real name is Eligio Bishop. 
And he recently was thrown out of Hawaii when he brought uh, his relatively small cult following there to set up uh, on the big island of Hawaii. And he calls his group Carbon Nation. And uh, it's a weird group. Uh, but what is typical about it is that Bishop is an all-powerful leader and that he determines what is right, what is wrong, and that the people in the group effectively see him as the focus of their worship and they follow him. He is the defining element and driving force of the group. And he recruits through Facebook, through YouTube, through he has Twitter followers. Uh, everything is online. And then he asks people to move in with uh, the rest of the people in the group or support the group financially. And what we're seeing now... Uh, Teal Swan. Yeah, Teal Swan is another example. Uh, what we're seeing now are people that can recruit, sustain, and collect money from a following and have a cult and not even meet people physically. It can all be That's done. The ultimate, man. Yeah, that's the best. I mean, think about it. You don't even have to actually interact with people in that nasty flesh space. You could just do it online and and just start collecting. Well, yeah. I, I guess um, some preachers, you could say, have been doing it uh, televangelist wise uh, through television. So yeah, maybe, yeah, I, maybe it's uh, just the next generation. Well, I think the televangelist, I would make distinctions uh, regarding televangelists. For example, uh, even though you might not like, say, someone like Jerry Falwell uh, Jr. and his father, Jerry Falwell, or Kenneth mm -hmm. uh, Copeland, or, or one of the popular preachers, Benny yeah. Hinn, Joyce Meyer, they actually do not tell their followers, uh, I alone can save you. So they would acknowledge that a person could be with another ministry, another church, and that what they're preaching is essentially that Jesus saves. Now, they, they may be somewhat uh, predatory in the way in which they garner money from their followers mm -hmm. and, and push their followers to contribute. And in that sense, they are like pioneers about these online entrepreneurs that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. It can be seen as uh, cult leaders. But I think the televangelists are not going to say, typically, um, you must belong to my specific ministry and follow me personally, or you will be lost. Whereas a cult leader will make that claim. And that is one of their definitive claims that would establish them as a cult leader, is that they define the group and that they are necessary for salvation personally makes total sense now i have a question here from uh, gavin stone and gavin actually does military intelligence and things like this so he's tangentially involved i guess if you will with uh, mind control and manipulation are there any small groups in particular that right now would be considered harmless but you believe have the potential to become a dangerous cult in the near future well, I would say racial identity groups that are forming. Um, they, they, may, uh, they may seem relatively benign. Uh, for example... Uh, like the Black it, Hebrew Israelites? Yes, the Black Hebrew Israelites. Uh, for example, the group Israelites United in Christ, 
uh, the IUIC led by Nathaniel Ray, who is based in Newburgh, New York. Uh, they're creating camps across the country, and their mm. message uh, is controversial. They're saying that African Americans are the chosen people of God, and that white people are right. essentially devils, evil, and uh, they they demonize whites in in much the same way that a white supremacists demonize uh, the African American community or or black people generally. So these groups, even though they may say that they're not violent, they have a historic propensity for violence. Uh, and they can, in my, in my opinion, those are the groups that can become uh, domestic terrorists, uh, most likely. And in fact, some terrible tragedies have occurred from groups like this historically. Like Symbionese uh, Liberation Army. Uh, Symbionese Liberation Army would be one example. Um, another example would be Timothy McVeigh, uh, who, oh, who, yeah. who blew up the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City and who who was very much involved with right-wing groups. Uh, yeah, they and, came out of the Turner Diaries and all those folks, right? Yeah, he was involved with reading the Turner Diaries, which became kind of his Bible. And he was involved with various... Uh, identity groups that could be seen as what uh, uh, I would think uh, white supremacist uh, or very extreme militia groups that uh, were, were, you know, very angry about uh, what happened in Waco and created conspiracy theories around David Koresh. Okay, well, now we're at the one hour point, so I'm going to finish out with uh, one question which I think is very appropriate. Rick's book, Inside Out, is a very comprehensive study and easy read on this complicated topic. And also the website I'd highly recommend too, because that's just sort of like the database. It's the IMDB of weirdos. Um, definitely check that out. Are there any other books you recommend to learn more about destructive cults? Uh, yes, I uh, have an 18-page bibliography in my book, Cults Inside Out. Um, there, there is a very, uh, one of the seminal books about cults would be Snapping by Flo Conway and Jim Siegelman, and also Cults in Our Midst by Margaret Singer. And then there are the books that really explain the uh, indoctrination process uh, that are seminal books, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism by Robert J. Lifton, and also uh, Coercive Persuasion by Edgar Schein and Influence by Robert Cialdini. Oh, Cialdini's fantastic. I mean, he's definitely one of the uh, top people in the world. What I like about Cialdini, too, though, is he makes it a point of being ethical and saying, here's a cult type of behavior. Here's an influence behavior. Here's what to look out for and how to control it, which I, I think is very important. Now, Rick, this has been outstanding. I'm hoping that maybe you'll consider coming back again, because I see that we're getting a lot of uh, feedback and questions, things like that. Uh, sure, Eric, I'm always happy to come back. And um, I think it, it helps people to demystify uh, these subject this subject of cults, because I think so often we just see, you know, uh, the, the news report, and we don't really understand what's going on behind that. And uh, I think that 
uh, again, that victims of cults, uh, it could be anyone. And I think we should not shame or blame the victims of cults, but instead try to understand the phenomenon. That is, how did they become involved and what was that process? And how could it happen to me or someone that I care about? I appreciate that too. And I, I think that we sometimes in media and things like that elevate them to too high of a magical power state. And really a lot of them are just thugs and creeps who uh, have tricked some people. Yeah. Or uh, as Margaret Singer used to say, con men perpetually running the same con on the same people. Perfect place to stop. Now folks, if you like this and you want to get Rick back, Please subscribe. Please reach out. Please share. And Rick, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Eric. Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.